Hi there, and welcome to the Haphazard History of the Caribou podcast. I'm Jason Ryle. This show is about the interesting stories dating back into the local history of central BC, primarily the Caribou Chilcotin area. Much thanks goes out to the Williams Lake Tribune for the opportunity to use this platform to tell the stories that are written by local historian Barry Sale. Barry writes the hugely popular Haphazard History column monthly in the printed edition of the Williams Lake Tribune. Today's edition of Haphazard History brought to you by Heartland Toyota in Williams Lake. Heartland Toyota is home of the first ever hybrid electric cars and SUVs. Join the electric revolution. If you want to make less visits to the gas pumps, come and see our new electrified lineup today. Toyota is considered to be the most reliable vehicles in the automotive industry, as well as having bragging rights to maintaining the highest retained value. Heartland Toyota, helping you go where you need to go. Stop by the dealership at 106 Broadway Avenue in Williams Lake. And from the whole team at Heartland, let's all take a moment and extend a huge thank you to all first responders, our nurses, and our doctors. Thank you. Welcome to Haphazard History, stories of the pioneers, people, and places of the Caribou Chilcotin region of BC. Now, here's Jason Ryle. The iconic bridge over the Fraser River, some 25 kilometers west of Williams Lake on Highway 20, sometimes referred to as the Gateway to the Chilcotin, has an interesting and colorful history. For eons, a natural slowing of the current of the river in that area made for a suitable crossing site. When the river is at its normal height, the current is usually peaceful enough for boats to cross. And when the flow of water is low, there are spots where animals can easily swim across. Prior to European settlement, there was a substantial Sohepam village located at the mouth of Chimney Creek, about 8 kilometers upstream from the present bridge site. The people there constructed log rafts, which they used to cross the river. In the early 1800s, Hudson's Bay Company fur traders and trappers were ferried across the Fraser on these rafts, which they referred to as barges. The indigenous people there then became known as the People of the Barge and are referred to as such fairly often in the journals of Fort Alexandria from the 1820s through the 1850s. With the coming of the gold rush in the early 1860s, one of the most common routes to the gold fields was via the River Trail from Lillooet, which paralleled the Fraser River on the more level west side. There were crossings at Canoe Creek, or further upriver at Chimney Creek, and trails led east to the diggings. The Chimney Creek Trail led east from the river, through Chimney Valley, up and over the ridge to St. Joseph's Mission and 150 Mile House, then northeast to Quinnell Forks and Keithley Creek. A side branch split off this route at what we now call the Pinchbeck Hill and made its way into the settlement of Williams Lake. Early in 1862, Amity Isnardi, a young man from France, arrived in Chimney Valley and preempted land alongside the trail. He constructed a roadhouse and a saloon and cleared land for a farm. There, he and his wife, the daughter of a chief of the Stalatin Nation in Lillooet, raised six children. 
By the mid-1880s, Isnardi had preempted or purchased, virtually all of the land in the valley. In the mid-1870s, with the gold rush over, there was a land rush of sorts to the rich agricultural grasslands of the Chilcotin. Settlers moved steadily into the area, but few of them stayed on, finding the winters especially too harsh. Those who did remain put down roots, establishing some of the historic ranches that still exist today. At this time, Soda Creek was the major town in the area, and the main route to the Chilcotin was to cross the river on the Soda Creek Ferry, then to follow the river south before moving inland to come out at Beecher's Prairie. A crossing at or near Chimney Creek was shorter, but considerably more difficult. Canoeing across to the west side, and then having to travel up a steep, rocky hillside to the top, after which... There was a fairly flat and easy run to Beecher's Prairie. Amity Isnardi, seeing a good business opportunity, began a ferryboat operation across the Fraser in the late 1880s. His ferry consisted first of a large freighter canoe, and later of a 6-by-12-foot scow, both of which were rowed across the river. To transport freight wagons on the scow, first the wagon was unhitched and loaded on, then the horses were led into the water and pulled by their halters behind the ferry as it crossed. Isnardi's eldest son, Joe, took over the ferry operation for a few years before selling it in 1900 to Murdoch Ross. Ross was an ex-school teacher from Nova Scotia who had settled on the west side of the river. He was a big man, over six feet tall and weighing better than 200 pounds. He had to be. Rowing back and forth across the river was backbreaking work. From this work, he received an annual government stipend of $500. Murdoch served as the Chimney Creek Ferryman until 1904, when the first bridge was completed. That first bridge began with a petition to the government in Victoria, writing in 1898 by Fred Beecher and signed by all 40 eligible voters in the region. They argued that such a bridge would bring prosperity to the Chilcotin and thus to the province. Surprisingly, the government of the day agreed, and by 1901, preliminary studies were done and a site where the river narrowed downstream from the ferry site at the mouth of Chimney Creek was chosen for the crossing. The bridge was a unique design, featuring a lower cable and counterweight to provide rigidity and to overcome wind lift and movement common to suspension bridges of the day. It had a 325-foot span with wooden towers on each end. On the west side, there was a long wooden approach trestle with a similar but shorter one on the east side. The stone piers on both sides of the river were built by a crew led by Louis Boitano, a professional stonemason and cousin of Augustine, who had established a ranch at Springhouse. Louis had come out from Favale, Italy, to visit his cousin, and he stayed to work on this project. The stone footings, constructed out of large granite blocks, were so well built that they're still standing today, 120 years later. In the late summer of 1902, work began on the bridge structure itself. 
The materials were shipped by rail to Ashcroft, then hauled to the construction site by horse teams pulling wagons in the summer and sleighs in the winter. There were up to 60 workers employed on the project, most of them local and unskilled. The huge 700-foot cables had to be shipped using large wagon convoys. Roads were poor and at some points non-existent. It was a massive undertaking. Built in September of 1904, the bridge was finally completed. The total cost was $65,000, almost double the original estimate. This new bridge was referred to by several names at first. The official government title was the Chimney Creek Bridge, even though it was several kilometers downstream from Chimney Lake. People called it by a variety of other names. The Chilcotin Bridge, the Fraser River Bridge, and the Sheep Creek Bridge after the steep Sheep Creek Hill on the west side. Most locals, however, simply called it the bridge. Right from the outset, the bridge was an adventurous crossing. Hanging a hundred feet or so above the river, it swayed and squeaked and groaned. The noise and the movement made both people and animals nervous, and many times animals would balk partway across or refuse to cross at all. People said it moved so much that it was like driving on waves. Holding pens were built at each end of the bridge so that only a small number of terrified animals could be driven across at a single time. As the structure aged, it sagged more and more in the middle so that vehicles had a significant uphill climb to get off in either direction. Heading west, getting off the bridge was just the start of the nightmare. Ahead lay the four-mile-long Sheep Creek Hill, with its 20% grade and six roughly cribbed switchbacks. Sometimes it was simply impassable. Over the years, the bridge saw yeoman service. It had to be repaired and reinforced several times, with cables being replaced, timbers, ties, and planking being renewed, and access to both ends being upgraded. By 1960, however, it had reached the end of its life, and it was obvious to everyone that a new bridge was required. The sag in the middle became notorious, as did the noise the structure made as larger and larger vehicles made use of it. A brand new concrete and steel bridge was erected just upstream from the old one. It was deemed that this old bridge was too unsafe to remain standing. So the decision was made to destroy it. Munitions specialists were hired to set charges and to blow it up into small pieces so that the debris would not cause problems further downstream. The first attempt was a failure. The old bridge shook a bit, and then settled back in place. The charges all had to be replaced, this time with considerably more explosives. This time, the entire east side was demolished, but the center span hung up, then dropped into the river as a single large piece. It floated down the river with the guardrails still in place, never to be seen again. There was considerable speculation about where it may have ended up. The west section was badly splintered but would not fall, so it was set alight and burned. The new bridge opened officially in September 1962, 
almost exactly 58 years after the old one had gone into service. This new bridge was officially named the Chilcotin Bridge, but as with its predecessor, it still goes by several different names. For nearly 60 years now, this bridge has been a reliable, safe crossing, as well as the major access point to the Chilcotin country. It is scenic and often photographed, and it stands as a testament to the strong work ethic and tough-mindedness of those who opened up the west side of the Fraser River. For this article, Barry relied upon the writing of Irene Stango and her book, Looking Back, as well as photos from the collection of the late Dr. John Roberts, photos from the BC Provincial Archives, and from the public domain website, Williams Lake and Caribou Chilcotin History. And you can see all these photos in the upcoming edition of Smart 55, produced by the Williams Lake Tribune. If you like what you heard, make sure you're subscribed so you can always catch new episodes as we release them. For upcoming printed articles, you can only catch them in the Williams Lake Tribune, on their website at weltribune.com, or check the Tribune's Facebook page. The next episode of Haphazard History will be the story of British Columbia's first tourists. For Barry Sale and everyone at the Williams Lake Tribune, I'm Jason Ryle. Thanks for listening.